Hi, my name is Kay. I'm an alcoholic. Thank you, Nancy. Somebody asked me earlier, is your, is your story going to be funny? I'm like, well, you write me a check, it'll be hysterical. <laughs> not getting paid for this gig, so I'm not sure if it'll be funny or not. It's just my story. It's my story, and I'm sticking to it. I will tell you jokes. Start off one of my favorite AA jokes is about alcoholic, drug addict, and codependent. Alcoholic would drive his car. The difference between those three is an alcoholic would drive a car into a tree, get out, and go, whew, i got to quit driving. <laughs> Drug addict will drive a car into the same tree, get out, and bust out laughing and say, it ain't my car, I stole it. <laughs> now, Al-Anon, untreated codependent, will get out there the next day and cut that tree down, saying, you'll never cause this to happen again. <laughs> That's my favorite AA joke. Um, I'm supposed to tell you a little bit about what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like now. I try not to spend too much time on what it used to be like because if you're sitting in this room, you kind of know what it used to be like, and uh, that's why we all, how we all got here. But just to qualify myself, I will tell you that I started drinking. Um, I actually had my first drink at about eight years old. My mother gave it to me as cough syrup. She gave me whiskey, a uh, t- tablespoon of whiskey soaked in sugar, or sugar soaked in whiskey, whatever, um, and that was as cough syrup. And I was about six months sober when I heard a lady share that, that she had started that way as well. And it hit me that day that I had hated how that stuff tastes, and I would, I would spit and gag and beg my mama not to do that again, and then I would fake coughing. <laughs> and my brother would even call me on. He said, Mama, she's fake. And I'm like, no. <laughs> no, I'm not, really. And she'd give me some more. <laughs> so, I've been sick this week, but I ain't had no whiskey. So just so y'all know, <laughs> I don't take that for cough syrup anymore. But I started drinking at 14 years old. That's probably the same age as a lot of your stories. Um, my dad had died from literally an overdose of beer. And I started drinking right after he died, and I drank for 20 years. And uh, September 10th, 1995, I just celebrated 15 years of uh, continuous sobriety. <laughs> That's important. Um, <laughs> I, uh, that's just by the grace of God. Um, my best friend got sober here um, about 90, exactly 90 days before I did. She's here tonight. Oh, happy Kathy. Some of y'all know her. I was either going to get sober or kill her happy butt. <laughs> so, <laughs> when you're miserable and drinking, you don't want nobody happy around you. Oh, well, just pray about it. <laughs> she invited me to come to a meeting. <laughs> She's like, why don't you come here? Jimmy thought. Jimmy said, Aaron didn't say a word through the whole meeting. I was ticked off. She was 30 days sober at that point. Then at 90 days, she invited me to come back to get her 90-day chip, so I came back. And that's the day I picked up my white chip. But I didn't hit me till I was about a year sober. She didn't invite nobody else to come. <laughs> I wasn't the only person she knew, but I was the only one she invited. So, <laughs> Some of you that were here, there's a few of you that were here when I got here, know that I was prayed in by some, and I used to say stalked in, by another. Boy, I came through the doors of AA. We are drama queens, are we not? I, <laughs> I think when we get our first year chip, we get, I'd like to thank the Academy. <laughs> we got some drama going on. <laughs> and I said, I'm being stalked. I'm being stalked. This guy's stalking me. Turned out, you know, about four years into the program, I realized 
he was just calling me a lot. Um, <laughs> see, the thing is, is that he lived in Edgefield, South Carolina. He worked at a comedy club that I had. He was like the bar back because, you know, we set our goals high when we were drinking. <laughs> he was waiting for the French fry guy to die so he could get that job. But, um, <laughs> and there's nothing wrong if you're a French fry guy. I'm not saying that. It was just, <laughs> Go home, jump off your double wide tonight. Don't. <laughs> you might sprain your ankle. But anyway, so four years into the program, I got a, I had a new sponsor because Kathy couldn't take it anymore. She fired me, and uh, she's like, "You just got to find somebody else." <clears throat> um, but I realized at that point that that magic magnifying mind that the big book talks about that we have. That guy lived in Edgefield, South Carolina. He made $180 a week working at that comedy club. It wasn't like he was going to fly in here. He didn't have a car. He didn't have a driver's license. But the real kicker is he didn't know where I lived. <laughs> he had never been to my house. <laughs> this is going to hit some of y'all tomorrow. He didn't know where I lived. and I, <laughs> I said he was stalking me. <laughs> I remember one night I shared that at a meeting here. It was several years ago. And at the end of the meeting, we had some time left, and somebody said, well, does anybody have anything on their heart they'd like to share? And I can't even remember who it was because I don't have the best memory anymore. But this girl raised her hand. She said, yes, I would just like to express my extreme disappointment in case stalker. <laughs> she said, for all these years, I've pictured this huge guy on her back porch with a knife, and turns out he just was calling her. That was funny. Okay, maybe not so much. Um, I told you it may not be funny. I don't have the memories I used to have, not just because of the drinking, but just because of my age and hormones and all that kind of stuff. I uh, was a little intimidated about the whole leather and lace thing because I told Nancy, I was like, the only thing I got that's leather is a chair. Because <laughs> you don't put leather on it. <laughs> and the only thing I got that's got lace on it is my coffee table. So uh, if y'all had the cotton flannel dance, I'd be right there with you. <laughs> I was skinny when I got sober. Apparently, I had this wounded overeater inside me that when I got sober, she came out. <clears throat> I didn't know I was going to need a big book, a sponsor, and a Lane Bryant credit card. I didn't know. <laughs> Nobody told me that. <laughs> I've been trying to get back into my twos, and I finally made it. They just have an X after them now, so <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> uh. I like to watch the exercise shows. I don't do any of them. I just watch them. <laughs> body by Jake. I said, there, I got body by cake. Look at this. <laughs> Hips by chips. That's me. Used to be rear by beer. That was me. <laughs> anyway, I'll quit cutting up. But um, no, I won't. <laughs> I do want to tell you all something. I, uh, I, I did. I was. I grew up in an alcoholic home, so I was born an Al-Anon. You know, so don't let that scare any of you. I do go to Al-Anon. Any Al-Anons here? Anybody? You see them cleaning up later. You'll know who they are. <laughs> Wiping stuff down. <laughs> you got a loved one. You want them to go to Al-Anon. All you got to do is say they need you there. They, <laughs> we're gone. <laughs> oh, they need me. I'll bake cookies. <laughs> 
That's what we do. My favorite Al-Anon joke is, you know, to get into AA, you got to you've got to have a desire to start stop drinking. But to get into Al-Anon, you got to know somebody. So <laughs> some of y'all are gonna get that tomorrow. Oh. <laughs> Crap, they'll be dancing like 13th step dance later. Okay, so I was about six months sober. I came into AA. I was not convinced that I was an alcoholic. I knew that I drank, and I had drank for years, and I knew that it was a problem. I kept waking up married to people I didn't like. That was a problem. But I was not convinced that I was an alcoholic because, see, at 14 years old, when I took my first drink two months after my daddy died from an overdose of beer, I took a vow... I had a bottle in one hand and one hand to God saying, I will never turn out to be like my daddy. And 20 years later, I had a big book in one hand and one hand to God saying, God, help me. I don't want to do this anymore. But I could not really believe that I was an alcoholic because I had made that vow. I was not like my daddy in that I drank like he did. But after I'd been here for a while, I realized the only thing I did different from my dad is it didn't kill me yet. I drink again it could and that I never drank Miller High Life beer because crap will kill you so I that was the problem see is he drank that crappy beer so I didn't drink beer till I couldn't afford to drink anything else and then I started drinking beer years later I did all the things that it talks about in the big book I switched and switched and switched and tried all these different things but here's where I found my alcoholism. I don't remember who it was six months, eight months, somewhere in my first year, I heard Charlie and Joe read the promises like this. Said before we took a drink of alcohol before I took a drink of alcohol Okay, let's back up. Did I mention that my memory's not as good as you used to be? <laughs> when I took a drink of alcohol I would know a new freedom and a new happiness. Whenever I took a drink of alcohol I would not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, I could comprehend the word serenity and I would know peace. Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, no matter how far down the scale I had gone, I could see how my experience could benefit others. (laughs) Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, that feeling of uselessness and self-pity would disappear. Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, I would lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in my fellows. (laughs) My daughter's here, hush. Um, (laughs) Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, self-seeking would slip away. Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, my whole attitude and outlook upon life would change. Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, fear of people and of economic insecurity would leave me and then come back and leave me again and come back. I used to stay home and contemplate future job opportunities. Whenever I took a drink of alcohol, I would intuitively know how to handle situations, which used to baffle me. And whenever I took a drink of alcohol, I would suddenly realize that alcohol was doing for me what I could not do for myself. And that was where I found my alcoholism, that that's what I could relate to. I remember the first time I came to a meeting here with Kathy, I thought, what a bunch of losers. Y'all were laughing at stuff that wasn't funny, and I knew what funny was. I was getting paid to know what funny was, and drinking coffee, and eating stale donuts, and hugging each other. And I just thought, good God, what are these people doing? I thought there must be quaaludes in that coffee or something. Because I could not, I couldn't see what she saw here. She was just, oh, hey, God bless you. And I'm like, whatever. I just remember... You know, but it's hard to see winners through a loser's eyes. And when I came back 90 days at the 90-day mark for her, 
60 days later, I had hit a bottom. I did not hit a physical bottom with alcohol. I was one of those that quit in time. I didn't, you know, I still was working. I was an active working road comic, whatever. I worked at um, different temp jobs here when I would stay home. I was working about 42 weeks a year on the road and 10, 12 weeks a year staying at home working temp. And um, so I thought I had it made. But see, the thing was is that stand-up comedy gave me that escape. You know, it gave me another addiction. It gave me a high. It gave me that adrenaline rush. Because you get an adrenaline rush whether they're laughing or not. <laughs> I got booed off the stage one night in Memphis, Tennessee by 350 black folks, and I was high. <laughs> I mean, that was, <clears throat> it was an all-black comedy death jam, and they wanted to know what was I doing there. Because <laughs> I was a white girl with red hair at the time. But anyway, I, that was huge adrenaline rush. But I realized that I was running, you know, and going to different cities every week. Nobody was really seeing what was going on with me, and I would only be home for just these little short periods of time. And I just remember when I finally, I had my last big, big blowout um, January of 1995. It was January 13th. I, re- I mean, it was Friday the 13th. I, I woke up to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And I'm not just quoting the big book. I am telling you that was my experience. I woke up to the four hideous horsemen. It talks about that terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. And I swore I'd never drink again. And that night, the the thing that had progressed in me is at the time when I first started drinking and in my early 20s, I could drink any guy under the table. You know, I could just drink and drink. They had three-for-one happy hour at this place next to where I worked back then. And I could go and drink three rounds of three white Russians or three Long Island teas and get up and walk a straight line out of that bar. And here we were, you know, 15, 20 years later, and I drank one shot that night and swore that was all I was going to have. And the next thing I knew, I knew nothing. I mean, I was total blackout because I kept drinking and I kept drinking. And that's that phenomenon of craving that you hear about. And uh, But I swore I'd not drink again. And come April of that year, I had not had anything to drink. Doesn't mean I was sober now. <laughs> I didn't say that. But I hadn't had anything to drink. <clears throat> and out of respect for AA traditions, I won't talk about the rest of that stuff. But um, in April, I moved back to Atlanta, and I got a roommate, and she drank. And she even asked me when I moved in. She was like, do you drink? And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> In fact, they gave me a bottle of rum for going away part present. Here, you can have it. Well, about three weeks later, I was tearing the house apart looking for that bottle of rum, and you believe that woman drank that rum? (laughs) (laughs) I was cussing her. That made me mad because I wanted that rum. I hit that spot. I thought, it's been three months. I can handle it. I can handle it. So I walked into the living room, and I said, um, that liquor store that you go to down here, what time does it close? And she said, oh, it's not, it stays open until 11. It was like 5 till, about 10 till 10. So I just took my time, didn't want her to think I was in a rush for anything, and I sat down and talked to her for a little while. And I left at about 10:15, got down there, and they had closed at 10 o'clock. And I remember sitting there, this was April of 95, banging my hands on the steering wheel, almost in tears, just the frustration that she lied to me or was wrong about this what am I going to do what am I going to do and I looked across the street and there's my best friend Kroger you know they sell beer and wine at Kroger so I went over there and got this huge bottle because it's cheaper (laughs) it's just going to have one glass 
You know, it's like Claude. I don't know if Claude is still here. He used to always say, uh, bottle caps are for shipping. (laughs) 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 Won't be needing that. (laughs) That was pretty much the the thing with uh, with that bottle that night. I drank the bottle. And there again, you know, here I've done it again. And I managed to stay dry a few more months and got up to, uh, well, it's funny because during that whole year of 95, every time I turned around, I I feel like it was God then doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. Every time I turned around, I was working with some comic that was in the program. And, um, I mean, it was like every four or five weeks, I'd hit a city and there'd be some AA talking God loving, praying, <laughs> sober, drunk, you know, and I'd just be like, oh, whatever. <clears throat> and so in July of 95, I worked with a guy, can't tell you who he is because he's anonymous, but um, you'd know him, and he was in the program, and um, we had a mutual friend that lived in LA, and, I, and he was in the program, and I think he ratted me out or something because the guy just hung with me all week that week. And he was married. I mean, it wasn't like he was trying. I used to be, you know, hot. Um, Now I'm just hot. (laughs) Now my temperature just runs higher because of hormones. But uh, anyway, (laughs) he was just trying to, you know, he was trying to 12-step me is what he was trying to do. And um, so come August 18th that year, it was my belly button birthday, and all day I said, I'm not going to drink tonight, I'm not going to drink tonight, I'm not going to drink tonight. And these guys that I used to work with called me. I was in town that week. They called said, we're going to take you out for your birthday. We're going to the Mexican restaurant. I said, okay, but I'm not going to drink. 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 They were like, whatever, okay. So we go out. They had a couple of drinks. I'm sitting here drinking Coke. And then all of a sudden I was like, just give me a CC and seven, but put it in a real tall glass because, you know, <laughs> that couldn't possibly do any harm if you put 22 ounces of seven up in it. And the next thing I know, five, six of those and an iron kidney later, I was driving home drunk. And I got home and all I could think about was going, I lived in Marietta, all I could think about was going on down to the punchline where I could drink for free, where I could continue to drink for free. I was already drunk. I'd already driven drunk from Roswell to Marietta home, but now all I can think about is drinking more for free. Well, my roommate had left me a little red velvet cake, which is still my favorite cake today. Just make a note. Uh, um, and left me a card that sang happy birthday, which is really kind of pitiful if you really think about it. She had just left town. They'd gone on vacation, and so I'm sitting here drunk in my room going, happy birthday to you, <laughs> and just really wanting to just leave and go. So next thing I know, I wake up on August 19th, still in my clothes from work, that cake sitting there, the card with the little birthday thing, and Kathy knocking on my door. And that's really the last thing you want to hear when you wake up <laughs> with a hangover is, Hi! <laughs> I think I'm here. <laughs> Where's my gun? <laughs> and she shows up at my house for my birthday, gave me a 24-hour-a-day book. Hello, happy birthday to me. <laughs> Oh, how nice. Thank you. <laughs> it's got stuff in there about God and all. And you're like, oh, just what I want to hear. But I swore off drinking again. 
and that was my last drink. That was that was not my sobriety date. But I went on back on the road, and um, you know I got into those relationships, those uh, those ones that don't end well. You know, it's like Claude used to say. You know, my picker was broken. <laughs> My picker was real broken. It's like, oh, he just needs a good woman. <laughs> well, then what's he doing with you, honey? Um, <laughs> and uh, that's all he needs. Is, you know, I'll change him. And uh, he didn't like that I had ended it. And he started, you know, his thing and started threatening me. And I did something I'd never done, never thought I would ever do, and hadn't never did after that. But I left. In the middle of that work week, I still had four more shows to do, which was like the bulk of my money, but I uh, I fled. And the only reason I did is because that morning when he had just been on the phone threatening me at night, you know, all night on the phone, and Kathy, all I, could, I remember her to this day saying, you have a choice, because I kept saying, I don't have a choice. i got to work. I don't have a choice. I don't have a choice. And she said, you do have a choice. We always have a choice. We have to choose our pain but we always have our choice. You know, we always have our choice. And she said, you can come home. And I didn't hear much of anything else she said, but I heard that, you can come home. And I did. And um, it was that, that was Friday, and I came home that afternoon. And um, Sunday morning, I came here and picked up white chip. And, uh, you know, I started right back out on the road. Well, I came here... Um, that Monday, we came to two meetings together that day, and then Monday I came to the one o'clock meeting. And it used to be this was the smoking section, and that was like the smoking cha- uh, non-smoking chair right there. And um, <laughs> that whole table was actually non-smoking. There'd be like three people sitting at it at any given point. But there were a couple of guys sitting there, and they'd had some disagreements, and um, apparently. <laughs> Something was said. Of course, I'm, you know, all of 24 hours sober, not, but 24 hours with a white chip in my pocket, and all of a sudden all I know is a fight breaks out at this table, and everybody goes over, and, you know, they pull them apart, and then they just sit back down, and the chairperson says, who would like to share now? <laughs> what the? <laughs> not me. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, which one of them can I marry? Because that's the kind of guy. <laughs> that's the kind of guy I usually marry right there. So, so and then I remember old Indian Charlie. Charlie's not here tonight. I went up to him because I recognized him from the Sunday morning. And I was like, Charlie, what in the world was that all about? He's well, your higher power warned you to see it for some reason, so just keep coming back. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> Uh, I hope I never forget that. And if you're new, that's been 15 years and a fight hasn't broke out since. So it's not a normal thing, but, you know, I mean, fights used to break out in places I went to all the time. But but I started traveling. I I left the next day, Tuesday, and went to Memphis. I was actually actually auditioning to go on Carnival Cruise Lines to be a comedian for them. And... um, I think that was God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself because I went to Memphis and I did uh, the audition and they called me that weekend, told me to get my passport. They wanted me to go to work by Christmas and I never heard. I prayed for God to do what he needed to happen in that situation because I'd already been warned how much drinking there was 
and how they did not treat the comedians very well because they didn't have room on the ship for us and we'd sometimes be flown ship to shore <laughs> in a helicopter in the middle of the night and then picked up the next day by another cruise ship and um, I came home and got my passport but I prayed and I prayed and I prayed about that and I never heard from them again and I just to this day think that that was truly God for doing for me what I could not or would not have done for myself because I, I would have taken it but I started going to meetings on the road. Um, Kathy was very encouraging that I should do that. Get out of that bed and go to the meeting. She actually said that to me one time. I remember I was about all of eight days sober. I was in Columbia, South Carolina, and I got to the meeting late because they didn't know how to tell me how to get to the meeting. And um, I walked up because I was like 15 minutes late, so they'd already split and the smokers were outside. It was at a church. And I walked up at the end of the meeting. They were doing this little tag team thing where they just call on somebody they want to hear, share, and nobody called on me. And I had so much to share at eight days sober. <laughs> if I ever had my, if I had that to do over, I wouldn't share till I was at least ten years sober. Because <laughs> I said some stuff I can never take back. <laughs> but I went up to the chairperson after him. I said, I just need to tell somebody the reason I was late was because the people at your inner group office didn't know how to tell me how to get here. Y'all need to get somebody on the phone that knows how to tell you to do it. You know, my head's spinning around, green pea soup's coming out. She's <laughs> like, you haven't been sober very long, have you? And I'm like, eight days, why do you ask? <laughs> She's like, do you know who runs our inner group office? I have no idea. I'm not from here. <laughs> She said a bunch of drunks run it. That too. I'm like, okay, well, you should tell them. <laughs> um, I spent a lot of time in Savannah in my early days of sobriety. My first um, pocket-sized big book was given to me by a little man, Charlie Yao. I say his name because y'all, some of y'all know him, and he, he blows his own in anonymity. I'm not doing that, but... Charlie was an active member of the Savannah group, and he gave me my first little pocket-sized big book. Now I have this. <laughs> I can't see that pocket-sized big book anymore. But I'll never forget, I was down there at 60 days sober, and Nancy was talking about the ego. And I knew y'all weren't all here to see me. Y'all were here to dance and find somebody. Um, <laughs> Can't find Mr. Wright. Mr. Wright now will be okay. But um, <laughs> um, Bumble said he went over to uh, Rebos and told him that there was a professional speaking at Apple tonight. I said, did you finish that sentence? Professional what? <laughs> he said, turns out they don't like for you to announce stuff at Rebos. <laughs> going on other places. But anyway, um, what was I saying? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to tell y'all something important. Oh, about the ego thing. Uh, 60 days sober, I was in Savannah, and ha a half place didn't have a group that gave out a 60-day chip, but the Way group did, and another group that had started up in Holly Springs, they gave out 60-day chips. Well, here I am in Savannah, and I got 60 days, and they don't give out a 60-day chip, and I wanted them people to know I had 60 days, because that was important. <laughs> I wanted to know how smart I am <laughs> at 60 days sober. And uh, I sat there through that meeting contemplating, plotting, and scheming how, when they gave out the chips, I would just go up when they gave out the 30-day chip and say, can I have two because I'm 60 days sober. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't laugh. Some of you are taking notes. 
Well, Charlie Yao got up to give out the chips that day, and this is what he said. I'll never forget it. Is he said, we have a chip system here at the Savannah Group to mark your time in sobriety, and the first one, the white one, that's the only one you work for. That's the only one you deserve. If you've earned that, come up here and get it. The rest of these chips, these colored chips, are gifts of a higher power for you just surrendering your way of life over to a higher power. By the time he got through with that little speech, <laughs> I felt like a mite on a flea's butt about that big. <laughs> I didn't go get two 30-day <laughs> I didn't even want him to know I was there at that point. But that is, that's, you know, that, that ego, that, oh, man, we've got an ego. we got that e. And I've heard it said ego is an acronym for edging God out, you know, and that's what we do. And we can do that stone-cold sober. Um, we've been through a lot, my husband and I, these last few years. We've been through some stuff. And uh, I would have never thought I could have stayed sober through any of that. And just by the grace of God and the love in these rooms, I mean, four years ago when he fell off a ladder and broke his foot, it saved his life because he was a ticking time bomb in his heart and his vascular system was all messed up. And he had to have seven surgeries in the next 11 months' time. And I thought we would lose our house, and at the time we still owed on cars. I figured we'd lose everything, and not once did we miss a bill because every day, every time we turned around, somebody was sticking a $20 bill, a $50 bill, a $100 bill. God told me to give this to you. God told me to give this to you. I remember coming home from Walmart one day and just had spent $30 and had no idea how I was going to pay our light bill. And uh, a guy I had done some work, he's my comedy mentor, the guy that helped me get started in comedy business, I had helped him 10 years earlier with uh, his comedy workshop, and I just sat in the driveway crying and praying. I was like, God, it's in your hands. I don't know what we'll do. I have no idea how I'm going to pay this, but you do. You've got a plan. And uh, I walked down to the mail. I almost didn't even go to the mailbox because every time I went, there was more bills, you know, and it was a check for $2,500 in my mailbox that day. And it's just, you know, miracles like that that God showed us through through you and through our church. Um, and I'm a recovering alcoholic and an overcoming Southern Baptist. And uh, <laughs> Amen, sister. Um, we, <laughs> we have a wonderful church family there and it's not a you know, it's not about religion. I won't tell you about who my God is from here. I'll tell you about him privately. He's not AA approved, but his daddy is. But um, just uh, <laughs> think about that for a minute. But um, you know, I lost my dad. My daddy died when I was 14 years old, and when I was 18 years old, my mom had remarried, and for the next uh, 18 years, I had a man in my life that was a dad to me, and. Uh, he was, in fact, my first witness of a good Christian man um, that didn't judge me for what I was doing, didn't condemn me for what I was doing, just loved me right where I was at. And uh, I was four years sober. Kaylee was just a baby when he died, and I was so confused, and I had no idea why God didn't heal him, you know, why he was such a great man of God, you know, and I thought he was just this mighty man of God and 
couple of years after he died, when I really got close to God, I realized that he was a mere man who served a mighty God, and he had shown me that. And um, But, you know, I stayed sober through that by the grace of God and, and the love in these rooms. And then um, after Eddie's ordeal, and he went um, got out of physical therapy in 2008, and my mother had remarried. Um, she'd been married about seven years at that point, and he had developed bone cancer which then spread to his brain and uh, he was falling all the time and I was going over there and helping her and you know, that's another thing that sobriety does is it gives you the ability to show up places instead of run you know and I would go over there and uh, help them and he died in June the day before Father's Day that year and about three weeks later Eddie's daddy was in a nursing home in Dublin Georgia in a VA nursing home and he got choked on his supper, and when they did the Heimlich, they broke his ribs, and he set up pneumonia, and that caused him to have a heart attack. And so the next several weeks, we were back and forth to Dublin, and he died the day after Eddie's birthday that year. But we didn't drink. Because then I would just have pain of the loss and the pain of drinking. And like I said earlier, we have to choose our pain. There's pain in everything in this life. We live in a fallen world. It's painful. So I choose the pain of staying sober versus the pain of going back to drinking. And a year ago, my mother was diagnosed with leukemia, and I was able to show up. I just one of the things that hit me today when I was thinking about tonight you hear sometimes people say this is a selfish program that's a lie I'm sorry but that is a lie I'm a selfish person and when I work my program it can be selfish but this program is a selfless get out of yourself go help somebody else kind of program I remember when Eddie was sick some of y'all remember Joe Duck (laughs) He was going through, he just had back surgery. He lived right next door here. And old smiling Tony, car wash Tony, was steady sponsor, calls Joe up and says, we need to go check on Eddie today. He's not doing too good. He's down in the dumps. And Joe's like, oh, I don't feel like it. He said, well, it ain't about you. It's about Eddie. Come on, we're going to go. We're going to get him out of the house, take him to lunch. So he calls Eddie and he says, Joe's down in the dumps. He needs somebody to come be with him. He's like, I don't really feel like it. He said, it ain't about you. It's about Joe Duck. Come on. We're going to go to the <laughs> And I'm not kidding. When they pulled out of the driveway, they both were like looking out the window like two little puppy dogs being taken to the bed. <laughs> I'm only going because of you. Well, I'm only going because of you. <laughs> That's what this program is about is about getting out of ourselves, not focusing on what about me, what about me, 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 but what about you, you know. And we're here for the person that's not here yet, and we're here for the person that just got here. And once you're here, you're here for the person that ain't got here yet, and you're here for the, for the, whatever. (laughs) That was going to be profound. I saw a shiny object and it left me. <coughs> it kind of left me there. 
But, you know, I remember when we when Eddie and I first got here, and we met at Sober at Six meeting, and uh, somebody would share that, uh, well, i got to move. I'm, I'm going to have to move this Saturday. And, I mean, <laughs> 25 people would show up with trucks and, you know, and that's really cheap movers when you don't have to buy them beer. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, it's, it's still like that today, but it needs to be more, I think we need to do more of that. We just, we get so caught up, the world is moving so fast and all the technology and all the stuff and, you know, I was telling Nancy earlier, you know, um, Things just don't bother me like they used to. I mean, when you've buried people, and Eddie and I were talking on the way down here, you know, half the people that, not half of them, but a lot of the people we got sober with, a lot of the people that helped us get sober, their cups were in that cabinet right there, you know? And um, I was thinking about Mike. I was thinking about Mike Cook today, and uh, Mike scared me to death when I first got here. And because uh, he's just just big burly guy, you know. And um, then when he was sick, and Sherry was sick, and Joe Duck had gone and got Mike, and I had come to be with Sherry. She had just found out that the cancer was back in her brain, and she stayed sober through it all. And so did Mike. And uh, we were sitting out here on her front porch, and Mike had had pain patches on him, and where the hospice people had taken them off, it had left a residue of sticky stuff, and you know, misfix it. I'm like, Mike, you know, if you could get some fingernail polish, remember, you could get that sticky stuff off. And he's like, I ain't putting no fingernail polish remember, on my skin. And I was like, well, you look like a piece of flypaper sitting there. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> he said, you're the only woman I know that's either uh, smart aleck enough or stupid enough to talk to me like that. <laughs> but um, I just, you know, some of the memories, I just think back of, you know, Paul and Pat and all the ones that have made this place possible, you know, that um, I just needed to kind of take a minute to reflect on them tonight. And uh, one of the things that... <clears throat> I was told that really helped has helped me um, is that you know we read how it works at every meeting the steps are how it works the traditions are why it works and the promises come true when it works but I remember somebody telling me one time to put my name learn to live the traditions um, and to put my name where you know certain things like uh, K should be autonomous <laughs> except in matters affecting other groups or AA's. K has but one primary purpose, to carry AA's message to the alcoholic who still suffers. Um, my favorite is uh, K ought never be organized, and I'm not. I live up to that. <laughs> Here's one I ain't got yet. K has no opinion on outside issues. <laughs> I got an opinion about everything. Um, but anyway, I, uh, like I said earlier, I just got a, by the grace of God, got the gift of a 15-year medallion of just a few days, you know, a few 24 hours ago, and that is a gift because 15 years ago on September 9th, 1995, if you had told me that 15 years and a day from now, you will be a mom, you will be a stay-at-home mom, You'll be a homeschool mom. You'll be a church secretary. You will be teaching Bible study. You will help run a, 
Christian drama troupe for your little girl and you'll have a husband that doesn't cuss you or call you names to my face. I don't know what he said. <laughs> I don't need to know that. That's none of my business. <laughs> I would have thought you were crazy, but that's what God has done. Thank you so much. God bless you.